Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to begin a new uh, series today entitled uh, Jonah, in a study of Jonah. Uh, A rebellious heart meets relentless grace. And I want to get immediately to the text today because there is so much packed into these verses. It will be so helpful for us. I want you to see this, though, in today's message, that God calls people for his glory and he pursues us in our rebellion to save by his relentless grace. God pursues us for his glory. Excuse me, God calls people for his glory and pursues us in our rebellion to save by his relentless grace. Let's go to verse one of Jonah one. I'm going to uh, work through the text as we read. So I'll only begin by reading the first three verses. Verse one says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord." May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. We really need to cover a few background items before we come to this passage and begin to deal with the text itself. And I hope to explain that to you as we do. The first question we need to address is simply this, who was Jonah? Who was Jonah? That's our most important issue to begin with. Is he a real person or is he a fictitious character? If you don't know the story of Jonah, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. Before we leave today, he will be hurled into the sea in the midst of a tempest storm that God sends and he will be swallowed by a great fish where he will stay for three days. And some of you are going, man, these people are nuts. They believe this stuff, don't they? Yes, we absolutely do. That's why I'm beginning with this issue of Jonah. Throughout the decades, specifically over the last 60 years or so, many have tried to discredit this book as a mere fable or only a story. Now, we know God uses stories throughout the New Testament. Jesus uses what he calls parables, which are stories that are not true but are told to make a point. We are familiar with this strategy in teaching. That is not what Jonah is. Jonah is a real man. He had a real family. He lived in a real place and he had a real ministry. And we know this for these reasons. Let me give you some, or let me give you some evidence to substantiate this position. His hometown was Gath Hefer. His family was, he was the son of Amittai, as we just read, a part of the tribe of Zebulun. His ministry is established in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it tells us he was a servant of the Lord that prophesied. But most importantly, friends, most importantly, if you want one person on your resume as your reference, this is the best one you can have. Jesus said of Jonah that he was the sign of a wicked and adulterous generation that if they would not repent and turn, 
they would be destroyed. Friends, if you can get Jesus on your resume, that's what you ought to do. And that's who's on Jonah's resume. I would also add this. God doesn't give his word to fictitious characters. God reveals his truth to people. And so without time to further elaborate, I'll cut through the chase and provide the answer. Jonah is real. This story really happened. And those who say otherwise are dead wrong. If you have any questions about my position on this, you can stay afterwards and I'll repeat what I just said. All right. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is going so well. We pick right up here in the middle of this story and the word comes and the word says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now we know more than likely in the time frame of Jonah's life, this is later in his ministry, not earlier, We know that for a number of reasons, and while we can't say with absolute certainty, there is a fair amount of certainty that we can understand that from. So we can conclude that Jonah was a seasoned servant of the Lord. And when God begins to speak to him, he says, arise. It's the first imperative command that he gives. And it's not so much the action. Obviously, the action is what he's supposed to do. But the word infers not only an action, but an urgency in it. In other words, uh, to use some, uh, shall I say, high culture vernacular from South Arkansas in my days of growing up, don't dilly-dally. Don't get distracted. Don't look for squirrels. Go, do it now. Hustle. That's what the Lord is saying to him. There's an urgency in the message. Therefore, he must respond appropriately. Now, he is commanded to go to Nineveh, a great city of the ancient world. Located near modern-day Mosul, Iraq, if you looked on a contemporary map, it's the northern part of the country. From Jonah's hometown, Gath-Hefer, we know it was about an 800-mile journey to the northeast, to the northeast from where he lived. And so the Lord commands him at this time to go to it, call out against it, because the evil of the population of that city has risen up to a level of being noticed by God. Don't miss that. I don't know what you do to get noticed by God in your evil actions and not get noticed. That's where most of you try to remain when you know you're doing something you shouldn't. But Nineveh had been noticed by God and was sending his seasoned servant to warn them of impending doom if they did not repent and turn to God. Three verses sets the context for the whole story. Here we are, all of a sudden, and quite frankly, friends, I wrestled with whether to preach a message on the first three verses as could easily have been done. Time did not allow me to do that, but there is so much packed into this that we should not miss it. Here is the context for a powerful story that shows us what rebellion looks like in our heart, but also reminds us of that relenting grace that God sends to save The Lord speaks to his servant with a simple yet clear command to proclaim his message. And is this not the very thing that the servant of the Lord wants to do? God, use me. 
use me. But Jonah's not like Isaiah, flailing and waving his arms and saying, oh Lord, here am I, send me. You know, when, when you get to that level of being a seasoned servant, you would think it's kind of like being a professional athlete. When does a professional athlete want to go into the game? When the game's on the line. One second left, we've only got time for one shot. Who wants the ball? Jonah's like, not me. Not me. Wait till we're ahead by 80 with two minutes left and then put me in, coach. That's when I want to play. He's like totally running from his responsibility here. The word comes and all that is left is for Jonah to obey. But of course, we know no good story is absent of tension. And so we come to verse three. Things were going so well. And then this little word that says so much to us in the text begins, but. You know what that word does in the text, don't you? But is always a word that turns you from the way things were going to now a different direction. But Jonah. Okay. We know the word but turns, but maybe something else is going on here. Let's wait and see. But Jonah. So Jonah is engaging here. Jonah rose. Three words in. We're doing so well. And then things go horribly wrong. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. One of the most encouraging words in scriptures is the word but. When the scripture defines our situation, our circumstances that are beyond our control and says, but God. You've probably heard a sermon of this. Preachers can preach but God all day long. When the worst of things is taking place, when life is falling apart all around, the scriptures tell us but God. But God, when everything seems impossible, but God. But friends, the problem here is God doesn't follow, but in this text, Jonah does. And that becomes the problem. But, do you feel that? I mean, things are going so well in the first two verses, but when we get to verse three, you can just feel the shift. And I tell you, if any word other than God's name follows but, it's never gonna be good. But is never a right response to God's command. And whatever follows, it's just simply not going to work out. Now, something else about scholars. They don't know exactly where Tarshish is located. There is debate and there is argumentation and there is no way to know with precise accuracy exactly which location it is. Some say it's down uh, in the southern part of Africa on the eastern coast, uh, about two-thirds of the way down, which would be way away because if you're getting on a ship to go there, you would have to go way out of the way to get there. Some say, which would be the closest location, it's somewhere in western Turkey. And of course, there's evidence for all of these that they point to. And then others say, which may be the most common thought of where Tarshish is actually located, is near the modern day city of Cadiz, Spain, which is on the Atlantic coast, just north of the Strait of Gibraltar. Now, I told you that Nineveh was 800 miles to the northeast. Best case scenario, if 
you assume Cadiz, Spain is the relative location of ancient Tarshish where uh, the ship was headed, we know that Jonah was headed roughly 2,500 to 3,500 miles to the west. Not the same direction God told him to go, okay? So there's no, there's no cloudiness about what Jonah is doing here. He's going in the opposite direction of what God has told him to do. That we know very well. Here's what we do know about Tarshish. The Tarshish of the ancient world was famous for its ships. The ships of Tarshish is used in the biblical language as a most impressive seagoing vessel. They were famous for their size. They were famous for the amount of cargo that they were able to hold. And they were famous for the long distances that they were able to travel. And so with all of that, coupled with Jonah's initial direction being the opposite direction of God's command, we know that the intent of Jonah is very clear. You see, the closest Jonah came to obeying God was that he rose with urgency. But then, but then it says, he paid the fare to flee in the opposite direction of God's presence. Can you imagine how heavy that ticket must have been in his pocket? Just a small piece of paper that reminded him that he was running from God. That must have been the heaviest note he'd ever held in his life. Friends, today I want us to look at three realities about rebellion against God. Three realities about rebellion. And here in the first three verses, we see the first. It's simply this, that running from God is always rebellion and it is always a costly endeavor. Running from God is always rebellion and it is always a costly endeavor. When we move to verse four, there is another but. There's another turn. We turned away from where we were headed in God's command and we went in Jonah's way. But verse four is a little more encouraging, but the Lord. Okay, we're back on the right track now, headed in the right direction. It says this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, man, are you feeling like you're in a tennis match yet? We're headed back this way again. No, don't go that way, go this way again. But Jonah, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now it feels like we're having deja vu because we're hearing the same things over and over again in the text, only from different voices. I suspect from the same voice ultimately though. Verse four brings a change of direction. This is God's good work. He sends a wind, stirs up a storm, and the ship is threatened by it. Those who knew what they were doing, these experienced mariners were struck with fear and they began to cry out to their God. They went through every contact they knew of, of a potential God that there might have been out there and they're praying to that God for help. They are stricken with fear in every way. And it tells us that they 
took immediate action to lighten the load and they start throwing the cargo over ship. And as they make their way into the belly of the ship where the heaviest of cargo would have been located and where the most stability of the ship in the storm would have been, there they find a man asleep. Asleep, mind you, when everyone else is afraid that they're about to die. It strikes them and they took that immediate action. But when they get down there, they found Jonah, it says, fast asleep. Listen, friends, Jonah wasn't dozing and dreaming. Jonah was closer to near comatose state. It's that stage of sleep that is beyond stage five, which is the deepest layer of sleep. But it's that stage of sleep where you force yourself to go because you are trying to mute the voice of your conscience and sear it so it will be quiet within. And sleeping hard he was. Can you imagine though? When suddenly awakened from the rebellious slumber with the same word he was running from, arise, arise. This time it was a man demanding that he call out to his God, the very God that he was running from. Irony of ironies, Jonah was fleeing God and yet God was using the people that didn't even know him to find him and to demand that he call out to his God. And of course, they were right to blame Jonah as they'll learn in just a moment. Friends, rebellion never makes sense. It doesn't make sense to the one who knows God. It doesn't even make sense to the one who doesn't know God. Because when one who doesn't know God sees one who claims to follow God not living in accordance with the commands of God, then it causes them to question, why bother? Why bother? And this way, rebellion ruins a testimony. You see, for the road, for the Christian, the road to rebellion always leads into a storm of God's stirring. And the deepest hole you dig for yourself to sleep in muted conscience will never be deep enough to hide from God's tempest. Christian, we should learn this from Jonah. God will never be idle toward his children in our rebellion. Never be idle toward us in our rebellion. This is the second reality I want you to see today. Rebellion always thrusts you into a tempest, a place where peace is disrupted because you are running from God's presence. Rebellion always thrusts you into a tempest where peace is absent and disrupted because you're running from God's presence. Well, when we pick up in verse 17, all the way through, excuse me, verse seven, all the way through verse 17, I I don't have time to read each of the verses, but let's overview them so we know how the story progresses. Once they get Jonah awake, they begin to cast lots to determine who it is responsible for this tempest. No surprise about who the lots fall to here. Jonah knew it was coming, and I guarantee you the sailors had a very strong inclination of who the lots would point to. They pointed to Jonah, and their inquisition begins. They begin to hurl these questions at him in verse 8. Tell us whose account this evil has come upon. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Now note this, that one part of his answer answers all but their first question. 
That tells them where he's from. That tells them that he is a person who claims to only worship one God, the true God. And it tells them what he very likely is doing, serving his God. But he hadn't told them his occupation yet, and that's probably best. Because to know he's got some kind of inner line to the Lord as a servant of God might have sent him over. Can you imagine? Imagine the fear that was already swirling in these men who are avowed polytheists, meaning that they worship any and every God they can find because they think the more the merrier, the more the better the protection. And yet when Jonah answers them, who do you worship? He said, well, I worship the God of the land and the sea. What? You worship the God who controls the very sea that is threatening to kill us and yet you sleep while we pray? You see, friends, Christians in rebellion makes no sense. It just doesn't calculate. They knew he was fleeing from God because as we've already read twice in verse three, but we learn again in verse 10, he had already told them he was uh, fleeing from the Lord, but they didn't know that it was that God, the God of the sea. You see, friends, the storm of Jonah's soul through which he managed to sleep cast a great suffering of harm and of loss on all who were around him. Imagine how many boxes of cargo could have been saved if Jonah had never gotten on that ship or if he had just admitted it early on when he already knew it. And yet many people lost many valuable things because of that. They immediately asked him what must be done to quiet the storm. Jonah gave the only answer that would suffice. He said, you got to throw me over into the storm. Throw me over. And irony of ironies, again, it is the sailors who are too merciful to Jonah because they don't want to do that to a man to throw him into his certain death. But because their own strength will not suffice, they finally acquiesce. They throw Jonah into the sea and it tells us immediately the sea ceased its raging And the sailors offered a sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Jonah slept so well in the bottom of the ship because he had other people carrying the burden of the tempest for him. That's the only reason he could. And friends, any act of faith, especially an act of repentance, it never makes sense to an unbeliever. That's why they didn't want to throw him into the storm. Why would we throw you to your certain death? Because what Jonah knew was it was God who had stirred the storm and until he stepped into it where God was calling him, it couldn't be stilled. But humans think only self-salvation is the answer. You see, when a person says, I believe and I worship God, but they live in rebellion to that God. They don't walk in the light of his goodness, of his glory, of his grace, of his promise, in obedience to his word. It just doesn't make sense. Why bother claiming to be a Christian and want nothing to do with God's word? Imagine how confusing of a testimony that must be for people who do not know God. You see, man's every effort will never earn anything from God. 
And the farther and the longer we run from God, the more troubled our soul becomes. The deeper into the hole of the stronghold we must go to try and find our peace. And the more people that are adversely affected by it. What sailors did not want to do in throwing Jonah over, Jonah knew that's the only right response. For the only one that can still the storm is the one that was stirring it. And that's the one that's pursuing Jonah in the storm with his relentless grace. Friends, rebellion makes the soul so miserable that any threat against personal safety or security for correction becomes negligible. All you want is peace within. And this introduces us to the third reality of rebellion. Rebellion strives to mute the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life, all the while demanding others to carry our burden of havoc, of hurt, and of suffering. Friends, I didn't begin this way this service. I did last service, but I'll tell you, this is likely the one topic in all of Scripture that I have the most authority to speak on because I have a great amount of experience. Far too much to even care to share or to talk about. Even in preparing the message to have to walk through the days of a hardening heart to the Lord, days of running from him, not only before my salvation, but even moments since, of fighting that ever constant temptation to harden myself to the Lord and find my own way, yea, even make my own way, regardless of what may come in defiance of God. And then we come to verse 17. Look what it says. And the Lord. Now, I said a lot about that word, but. Let me say something about this word, and, because these words so often just get read right through. But you see, friends, in this tennis match that we've been playing here, the direction we started is the direction we're going to end up in. Because that's the direction that God has determined Jonah will go. And finally, when the turning has subsided and the storm has been stilled, it says this, and the Lord. You see, we got turned in the right direction. And this is the direction that God is going to move the story for Jonah. That's how relentless grace works. He loves you too much to leave you in your rebellion. But when he finds you, he's going to turn you back in his wisdom and his grace. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Arguably, here's one of the reasons people have the greatest uh, challenge in believing what is even written here. Seriously, you're going to tell us that a great fish just happened to be in the area of the storm and then swallowed him up when he dove into the water? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you something even more than this. The reason that fish was where he hit the water is because God appointed it to be there. You say, you're nuts, I am. But if I'm crazy for the Lord, I'll be crazy for the Lord. And I know at least the apostle Paul is there with me. Friends, it's not too much to understand the work of God. 
But what we need to understand is in our war of rebellion, that war's for our heart. It's not like that. The scriptures tell us that creation doesn't say but to God. Like when God commands creation, there is no measurable moment of time that can pass before they've already responded and they are moving to obey the one that created them and sustains them for his purposes. When that fish was appointed, it automatically began swimming in the direction and there is no GPS coordinate that could be more acutely perfect on the location that he would pick Jonah up than where he found him when he hit the water. And it would be a great fish that would be the Uber to carry Jonah back into the will of God. Why? Because God appointed a fish. I'm telling you, if you think about this, you can never look at creation the same again. Every day you walk out and I walk in the woods a lot. And I'm like, Lord, I don't want to rebel against you because I don't know which of your creatures you might use to turn me back to you. I suspect it could be a snake because you know how quickly I turn and run when I see one. It was a fish for Jonah. See, we don't know exactly where the fish was at when he swallowed Jonah, but God knew where Jonah was going to be at and that's where the fish was. If it was headed to Tarshish, Very likely, and uh, as tradition holds, the Strait of Gibraltar would have been where Jonah caught his ride, somewhere very near to that area, about a three days journey by ship in those days. But we don't know that for sure, that's speculation. Here's what we do know. God appointed the fish to swallow him and return him to where God wanted him, and returning him took three days. Now, it could have been they were just a couple of miles off the original coast where he got in the ship and the, the great fish, I almost said whale, I almost said it, but I corrected myself before it came out. He might have just had to swim around for three days until Jonah got his heart right, you know? We, we don't know that. We'll read next week about the prayer that Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of the great fish. But what we do know, he was there for three days and we will learn later there's a reason divinely ordained for why he stayed there three days. But at the end of that three days, he was returned to where he was supposed to be. You see, friends, this last verse is the greatest comfort of all for us because it reminds us God is always in control of all things and he and he alone is the one who has made a way for our salvation. God doesn't just make a way where it becomes most obvious the way it ought to be. God doesn't just make a way for, well, it was difficult, but it was there. The scriptures teach us that God makes a way where there otherwise was no way. He parts seas so his children can walk over on dry land and those who immediately follow are drowned. That's the way God makes. God comes to a point, to a moment of you in your life and he knows where you are because he's been tracking you the whole time. And he has appointed a means for your salvation. And he is there waiting in his relentless grace to swallow you up when you have no other option for life. Friend, the storm that God stirred up put Jonah in a place where he had no running from God in rebellion was futile and ruinous. And Jonah chapter one screams that message to you and me today as well. 
Jonah is a feature story of sinful rebellion. Friends, rebellion will always cost you more than you want to pay. It will take you further than you want to go. It'll entangle you in things you never wanted to be involved with, you never intended to get involved with. It'll drag you down deeper than you ever imagined you could be. It will do more damage than you ever could have imagined it doing. And it will always bring consequences beyond your control that you never intended to happen. And then to cap it all off, it will not give you what you wanted to begin with. There isn't anything good that comes out of rebellion. It is always futile and ruinous. But God's relentless grace, friends, is always pursuing and near. Always pursuing and near. Friends, God calls people for his glory and he pursues us in our rebellion to save us by his relentless grace. Grace. We've looked at three realities of rebellion. I want you to see three realities of repentance when rebellion meets relentless grace. When rebellion meets relentless grace. The first reality is this. Rebellion hardens the heart toward God, but relentless grace brings peace with God. Rebellion is what I call the process of heart petrification. It is a continual hardening until the very substance is changed without a hope of returning. You see, rebellion only hardens the heart, both in its reaction against whatever it is that is commanding it or exercising authority to it, but it's also another means of hardening in the heart in rebellion, not only in reaction to the command or the authority, but friends, by the very chosen indulgence that you indulge in, in your rebellion. Every moment of moving into your rebellion is a further hardening of the heart. You think you're hiding in the belly of the ship. God says, but I know where you are. Rebellion is always the heart asserting its dominance to serve selfish wants and desires. It deceives the heart to believe that they're fighting for freedom when all the while you're just building your own little dungeon prison stronghold. You see, the Bible's word for rebellion is pride which according to the ancient theologian Augustine is the mother of all sin. That which conceives every sin is the pride of man. Rebellion is like a bottle where the pressure has become so great that it feels impossible to unscrew the top. This is what the person in rebellion feels like within. It gets so pressure stricken from within that they don't feel they could ever open themselves up to God. And the one caught in rebellion stronghold will either be saved by God's relentless grace that comes through his word, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, his word tells us, discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart so that they can see them clearly for the first time and breaks the stronghold to bring repentance that they could not see before. Or they will be crushed by rebellion's demand of sovereignty that they are not capable to withstand. The second reality of rebellion meeting relentless grace is this. Rebellion takes many forms and exacts a high cost. But repentance means grace calms the storms and makes a way to be with God. Rebellion takes many forms and exacts a high cost. 
You know, a typical concept of rebellion is that open, kind of outraged defiance in response to some expression of authority. But there is an opposite expression that is equally just as common. It is that quiet, sometimes smiling agreement that appears to concede or appears to accept whatever is said. All the while, though, simmering and smoldering underneath, that's covered to conceal from detection because they don't want it to know. Covered rebellion may not be as visible and may not be as obvious, but it is as equally defiant to the Lord and it leads to the same stronghold away from God. You see, friends, rebellion is a matter of heart inclination long before it births any action. And while it takes many different forms, it's always self-exalting and self-defending to reject authority or any perceived threat to self-sovereignty. So I say to us today, Christian, beware lest you think rebellion could not, would not, does not tempt you. Jonah was a seasoned servant of the Lord. Rebellion is a constant threat even for those who know God. It bloats us by any knowledge of God that we hold that has yet by faith to produce our obedience. Think about that for a moment. It's a constant threat because it reduces our serving of God to some attempt to leverage God for our own selfish will and gain. It substitutes our strength for our dependency on God going, well, I can do this for you, God, I can do this. And it deceives us to replace his command with our Will. Sinclair Ferguson warns of rebellion's delusion when he says, No past privilege nor all past privileges together. No past obedience nor fruition in service can ever substitute for present obedience to the Word of God. Great blessings only bring present fruitfulness when they are met with continuing obedience. How many Christians plead to hear from God? Oh God, please speak! But then what he says is not what they wanted to hear. You see, rebellion always begins in response to God. But Lane, but insert your name. It's a turning away from God. And very often our rebellion against God is cloaked by our resistance towards people that he has placed in our life who represent his authority to us. Item number one, parents. Parents who are ordained by God to, to, to nurture and bring up their children in the admonition of the Lord. Our boss, those people that represent authority to us in the world, whether or not they are believers or not is not the issue. Do they hold a position of authority of which God has ordained for them to hold? And can you submit to that authority in submission to Christ? Sometimes even a pastor and elder. We don't talk about that much today, do we? No matter who it comes through, resistance is always first and foremost a rebellion against God. And friends, no one is absent of rebellious tendencies or temptations. It's only a matter of how deep into the hole of the stronghold you bury yourself to sleep the numbness and the hardening towards God. The third reality of when rebellion meets relentless grace is this. Rebellion will never reverse course, but God's relentless grace comes near 
for surrender by repentance. Rebellion will never reverse course. It will tell you it's a better way. It will not reverse course. You ever wonder why, why magnets that otherwise would magnetize to one another, if you get the wrong ends to one another, they you know, just throw your hands kind of all over the place? You know why that is? Because magnets require opposing poles. And when you have the same poles facing each other, north to north or south to south, it will never magnetize. It will always oppose itself. And so it is with rebellion. When the same poles face each other, it will always be a fleeing, a repelling from God. As long as the one holds that they are sovereign over their life and not God. Until you confess your sin and you confess his righteousness, you cannot come into life with God. Rebellion always turns away from God instead of running to his word, instead of drawing from it, instead of trusting in it, and instead of walking in obedience by it. Friends, God's relentless grace is the only power that can break rebellion's repulsion and turn you.